Thank you, uh, Ruben and Shannon. Let me add my welcome to that of Ruben's. It's so good to see you here. It's good to see some visitors. Um, especially good to see that the sunshine has found its way across the Irish Sea and is making an appearance so the summer might begin. Um, as Ruben has said, we're starting into James this morning. And just by way of introduction, I want us to look uh, at the last two verses in the book. So keep your, your finger in chapter one and nip over to the end of the book. And while you're doing that, I want you to, 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 to think with me. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of being in a car with a driver who fell asleep. Um, I, when I was very young and immature and had no responsibilities, was overtired, under-caffeinated one evening, um, and I drifted off only for the rumble strips on the side to wake up the passenger beside me who was also asleep. He reached over, grabbed the wheel, which woke me up, and we jumped across the lanes, um, and we certainly didn't sleep the rest of the journey uh, with that fright. And that image of drifting off uh, like a driver on the motorway is, I think, what James has in mind in these last two verses of his letter, where he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James is concerned. That's why he's writing this letter. He's concerned that there is danger that we might wander from the truth. It's almost like a gentle drift, a sleepy driver fading away falling off the lane, a sort of veering off the path. And James is determined to stop it, and so he writes this letter. And the cause of this drift, in James's words, in what we have in, back in chapter one, verse number eight, is what he calls double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. I say it's James's word, because it's actually a word that he coined. It, it literally means double-souled. And we'll get it again in chapter 4, verse 8. And this, this double-mindedness, it has the idea of being divided, of being fractured, of sort of looking in two directions, being caught in two minds. Like we're trying to have a foot in two camps. Wavering that leads to drift. Attempting to, to live for God, but also in and off the world. Attempting to live like a Christian, but also like a non-Christian at the same time. And in our passage, I wonder if you noticed in verse number six, James uses the analogy of a choppy sea for this double-mindedness. We're back and forward, up and down, never constant, predictably unpredictable. We're unstable as the surfer and the captain of that ship are learning double-mindedness. And the overall message of the letter, James is, watch out, guys, because this double-mindedness will cause us to drift away. And James is a, a passionate, his sort of passionate shepherd's heart beats throughout this letter. You can hear his concern on every sort of verse. Brothers and sisters, he's concerned that we become singular, that we become wholehearted, undivided in faith and integrity before God. Now, James is a very sort of busy, active letter. 
It's just 108 verses, but in that 108 verses, there's 54 imperative commands, calls to action. So he sometimes will get up in our face a little bit, and he'll challenge us to check ourselves. Are we trying to have a foot in both camps? Are we caught in two minds? Or is what we say, what we sing, what we claim to believe, is that adding up with what we do? how we behave. And reading through this letter over the last few months and his exhortations, it it reminded me of Tim Keller's metaphor for Christian ministry and being a church leader. He says it's a bit like operating an old vending machine. You know, sometimes you put the coins in the top, but straight away there's not much activity. And you have to sort of give it a shake and give it a bang for the coin to fall and for the motors to start moving and your packet of crisps to fall out. And sometimes this letter, it feels like James, the the, the experienced elder, is trying to get the coins to drop. And he's given us a bit of a shake. He maybe gives us a bit of a bang, you know, scraping the coins on the side. Do you remember? To try and get the coins to catch. The kids are asking, why don't you just use contactless? We used to have coins. And James is desperate for the coins to catch, for the pennies to drop, for the gospel truth that we claim to believe, the theological facts that we know, for them to show themselves in concrete growth, fundamental action in what we do. So that there's no fracture, there's no divide in us, there's no tendency to be double-minded. And in this first chapter... I want us to look at it in in, in what James brings to our attention is three very practical areas in which he wants us to get our thinking straight, to get our our minds single, united, minds of integrity. So we're going to look at three things. Be single-minded in our trials. Be single-minded about wisdom. And be single-minded about wealth. And then we'll close with verse 13 uh, to the end, verse 18, with two Uh, contrasting metaphors that he brings uh, to conclude this section. Well, look at me with me for verse number two to four. Be single-minded about trials. James, as is his characteristic way, doesn't waste any time. Verse number two, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. The language is purposefully very vague, very broad, It sort of encompasses all sorts of hard and difficult trials and pressures that we might experience in life. And James says, count them all joy. Let's just pause for a little moment and think about the context um, that James is writing into. James is writing from Jerusalem, the location of the first Christian mission and church. And he's writing to the first generation of Jewish Christians who have recently been driven out from Jerusalem because of persecution that we read about in Acts. And so we can sort of try to imagine their experiences. Perhaps some of them have lost their jobs, lost their homes. They're starting out somewhere new, forced to take jobs that are way below their training grade, trying to set up home without their communities. They've become marginalized in society, and many of them under financial pressure. They're suffering for their loyalty to Jesus. And perhaps many of us might 
feel some sort of similar experience. Perhaps different sorts of pressures, loneliness, disappointment with our circumstances, uncertainty with our health, the relentless pressure of day-to-day responsibilities that can make us feel worried. Whatever it is, James isn't specific, but he says whatever those trials are, whatever those things that bring the anxiousness to bear, he says, count it all joy. Now straight away, you must think that's a bit strange. How on earth can we respond to these types of trials with all joy? The idea here is is that of a a joy that is pure, not necessarily going to be easy or happy. There will be sadness, there will be tears, but it is possible, James says, that at a fundamental level, there is pure joy, not a phony, kind of fake, insincere joy, but one that is solid, one that is pure. And I love the verb he uses, the doing word count. It's a calculation that needs to be done. In fact, it's probably going to go against our first response. But he says, do the maths. There's an equation to be done. And most people still think this is mad, right? The the normal equation is trials equals pain, which we need to avoid. But not for the Christian. Don't just adopt the, the mindset or the thinking of the world around us. Don't use the same calculation everybody else uses, James says. Don't be double-minded. He says, think about it this way. You know, verse number two, verse number three, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, it's like a gospel coin that James is trying to get to drop in the vending machine. You know that these difficulties that come into your life are for a purpose. We know that the pressures we face are allowed by God to refine, to to purify, to tease out the imperfections and increase the value of our faith, the clarity of our faith. So do the maths. Let the coin drop. In fact, James tells us that these things, they produce steadfastness of character like a muscle that's trained and gets exercised, it gets stronger. And what's more, he says, that steadfastness in the hands of your Father God is doing further work to transform your whole character that we might become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What a phenomenal purpose. What a phenomenal goal that God has for us in the experiences of life. So don't lower the bar. That's the goal God is using our experiences of life, particularly the hard things, the trials, to slowly transform us to be men and women of faith, of integrity, united. So what might that look like practically? One of the first things I thought about was it might affect how we pray. You see, if we're thinking in the worldly way, our first instinct when we pray might be, dear Father, this trial's really hard. Please, can you take it away? I know that's my instinct too often. Perhaps we should pray rather like Jesus prayed for Peter. Father, maintain our faith through this. Strengthen and purify our trust in you. Despite these challenges, can we grasp the joy 
and let you do your work in us to become more like Christ and develop character through this. Perhaps that will change how we ask others to pray for us. My boss has given me a real hard time, but pray that I'd be patient and show him the character of Christ. Praise God that in this difficult time, I've learned to trust him a little bit more. I've learned his goodness in the midst of this pressure. I'm I'm struggling with contentment. Please pray that I will develop more contentment in this circumstance of life. If we're doing the maths, if we're doing the calculation, and we're counting it all joy, we're seeing what God's purpose is in the big picture, then we'll think single-mindedly about our trials. Secondly then, Verse number five to verse number eight, be single-minded about wisdom. And perhaps that first exhortation from James feels almost impossible. Perhaps we feel far away from that sort of thinking when it comes to the trials and the pressures. We've been so influenced by the world around us, we sense a bit of double-mindedness. In fact, we feel more our lack than our wholeness. Well, then there's good news in verse number five. Look at verse number five. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Later on, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna see James expand again on this theme of wisdom. If you just jump over to chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, he makes it clear that, again, there's these two types of wisdom. There's wisdom that's from below, verse 14, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And verse number 17, uh, there's a wisdom that's from above, that's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You see, for James, wisdom isn't just, you know, smarts, more brain power. It isn't even just trying to make a good decision in a tricky situation. It's character, it's behavior. It sounds very much like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? And going back to chapter one, if we're going to respond appropriately in the trials of life, in the pressures, in the anxiety then we're gonna need God's wisdom at work within us. And so James exhorts us to ask for it. Please, Lord, help me to walk and act in the wisdom of the Spirit of God. And James assures us that God gives generously without reproach. You know, I'm told by my older siblings that I was spoiled because I was the youngest child, and I'm not really so sure you know, my memories are very much that I had to justify in great detail and with great persuasion every request with an in-depth report on how I spent last week's pocket money before I'd get any more. But it's not so with our Heavenly Father when it comes to his gift of wisdom. His resources aren't tight. He gives generously 
The idea behind that word is actually sort of a contrast to our double-mindedness. He gives with sincerity, integrity, with a singleness of intent, with a pure-hearted, whole-hearted fashion. He doesn't ask us, what did you do with yesterday's wisdom? He stands ready and willing to give it again and give it again. And James implores us, our duty is to ask. But I wonder, did you notice when we read then in verse number six through eight, how it is that we're to ask. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We get back to this key theme for the, the letter. There's no point asking if we're going to try and have a foot in both camp. We can't hedge our bets, keep some worldly wisdom in our back pocket just in case we don't like plan A, wisdom from God. Yes, I, I want to be godly you know, most of the time, but there's a couple of boxes I just like to tick and opt out of. James says it doesn't work like that. That's impossible. That's the double-mindedness. You can't have his wisdom one day and then try to act by the world's wisdom another. Be single-minded about the wisdom we live by. So what might that look like? Well, I wonder what it would look like if we asked God to push out the worldly wisdom in every area of our lives. And with singular intent, we ask God for the wisdom from above in all spheres of our lives. How might that affect our attitude, our relationships, and the hardships that we've thought about in verse two to four? How about make that our daily prayer, that we might act with wisdom from above? And James tells us God promises to give it to us generously. Thirdly then, verses nine to 11, single-minded about wealth. Often with James, it can seem like he's going off on a, a slight tangent, but as you get more familiar with it, it's, you start to see his thought flow. But you know, wealth is a funny thing, isn't it? Why is it of such interest to us? You know, the, the Times publishes the rich list every year, and we kind of get fascinated, you know, Googling, what's so-and-so's net worth? Tiger Woods made the headlines just last month by becoming a sporting billionaire. Or maybe you're the person who kind of drifts onto, you know, property pal and looks at properties that are way outside your price bracket, but you kind of like to flick through and see how the other live and imagine what it would it be to have that as a second home. Maybe it's something much more subtle, but why is money so attractive? They say, don't they, money makes the world go round. And perhaps for many of us, it's when it comes to the issue of money and wealth where the biggest test, the toughest test will be found. And it certainly would have been for these first generations of Christians who've been displaced from their homes, lost their quality of life, their livelihoods. And so James addresses it head on here in chapter number one. He will come back to it later in the book, but in verse number nine to verse number 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of 
the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, the flower falls and its beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James addresses it head on. We need to be single-minded about wealth. And he addresses two Christians, one financially rich and the other financially poor. But again, he gets to the heart of the issue, which is drawing a contrast between how the world thinks about it and that sort of mindset and how they are truly to be valued spiritually before God. So he says in verse number nine, to the Christian who has financially little, the lowly brother, you're seen as less powerful, less influential in the world, but James says, don't you realize that you have been exalted to be joined with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Make noise and boast about that and the riches that you have in him. And consequently, he speaks to the rich believer, the one who has financially more, And he urges them to take care. Don't put your trust, your boast in your business, in your bank balance, in your social position or your power or influence. That stuff is temporary. Like the flower scorched by the sun, it withers and blows away. So don't put value on those things that the world does. In fact, he says to him, almost ironically, The most important thing about you is that you have humbled yourself before the cross of Christ and that you follow the servant king who was despised and rejected. That humiliation in coming to follow Christ is what you need to boast in, not in your wealth. And I think this is tough for us because it's gonna be really hard to stand up and be singularly loyal to Jesus Christ if what we value is what the world values, if it's wealth, comfort, influence in this world. And for these early Christians, it will just be the same for us, putting our hand up and saying we belong to him and to serve Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, it will threaten those things. Maybe our reputation, maybe even our career, maybe our bank balance. And so the trials that the Lord allows to come into our lives will force us to ask the question, what is truly valuable? Do we boast in our association with Christ? Do we value that above what the world around us values? Are we single-minded about wealth? are we in danger of getting caught in two minds, being pulled in two directions? So you can see in these first 12 verses how that James, three times over in three practical scenarios, calls on us to be single-minded. Single-minded in our trials and the pressures of life. Single-minded about the wisdom by which we live. And single-minded about wealth and the values that this world holds so dear. Just finally, if we can go back two slides, Alex. In verse number 13 to 18, James makes this contrast between two different births, two different metaphors, two different pictures of birth. And, and he wants us to be really careful here in verse number 13. 
You see, he's been making the point that these external trials and tests are allowed by God to develop our faith. And in them, God offers us the wisdom, the resources that we need to respond correctly. And one of the key tests is going to be around wealth and worldly values. But he also wants to just balance it in verse number 13, 14, and 15, and says that inevitably those same trials will carry with them a temptation to sin. We can respond badly in those trials. When the financial pressures come, we can question God's provision for us. In loneliness and disappointment, we can question God's love. There will be a temptation to sin, and James doesn't want us to get confused because that temptation to sin, that doesn't come from God. He has no dealings with sin in any way. No, that temptation to sin comes not from God, but rather from within ourselves. And to illustrate it, he uses another one of his famous word pictures. This one's maybe a little bit graphic, a little bit PG-13. But it shows us how worldly wisdom works. He says we get hooked by an evil desire, like a, a fishing lure. It drags us away. And then he flips the metaphor and he says... It's as if we get involved with that evil desire. It gets us pregnant. And after the pregnancy, we get to the delivery suite and we bring forth, not this beautiful baby, but we bring forth sin. And that little sin baby grows up to be death. What a, a sort of sickening, vivid picture of the tragic experience of what sinful, worldly thinking can do to us in the midst of these trials. We can't let it get a hook in or else it will wreak havoc. And he contrasts that in our last verse, verse number 18, of a very different sort of birth. The birth, the spiritual new life, verse number 18, in contrast to, to that family of sin and our evil desires, the family of God, verse number 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this is where we want to finish. Because how are we going to be single-minded in our trials? How are we going to be single-minded in pursuing heavenly wisdom? How are we going to be single-minded when it comes to assessing earthly wealth? Well, we're only going to do it if we are convinced of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And so he gives us this picture, this picture of our new life that we have been given, that, that God, with singleness of intent, of, with generosity, has brought new life to us. He has brought us into his family through the, the word of truth. He has implanted in us resurrection life so that we now belong to the new heaven and the new earth that is to come. He has made his intentions clear. He's already given us the Holy Spirit as his down payment. Jesus Christ prays daily for us that we will get to that new creation. And again, James is shaking it, that that coin would drop, that we would know how to respond to the work of God, that he has brought new life with him, given it to us, so we know his goodness his unchanging faithfulness as our heavenly father, and so we can respond with singleness of heart. Let me pray as we close.
Father, we thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for the great legacy of Bible teachers that have served your church throughout the generations. And we thank you for James as he stood in that first church with that first generation and penned this first letter. And we hear his exhortations this morning to take the truth that we know and let it have its full impact in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes, and in our actions. So we pray that you would galvanize your word within us and by your spirit empower us to put it into practice. So we commit the work of your word to us, to you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.